Hello and welcome to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. It's lovely to have you back. However, this is your first time with us. I'll just explain how things go. First, we have the story. Then, once the story's finished, we have some discussion about where the story comes from, some of the folklore in the story, and then we look at the food, the history of it, and then we come to this week's recipe. This week, our story is The Punishment of Fairy Gangana. It's from the Olive Fairy Book by Andrew Lang. This is a French fairy tale, and it's quite different to some of the others we've explored before, so I hope you enjoy it. If you're comfortable, gentle listener, we'll begin. Once upon a time, or even longer ago than that, there lived a king and queen who ruled over a country so small that you could easily walk round it in one day. They were both very good, simple people, not very wise perhaps, but anxious to be kind to everybody. And this was often a mistake, for the king allowed all his subjects to talk at once and offer advice upon the government of the kingdom as well as upon private matters. And the end of it all was, it was very difficult to get laws made, and even more, to get anyone to obey them. Now, no traveller ever passed through the kingdom without inquiring how it came to be so small. And this was the reason. As soon as Pataldo, for that was the king's name, had been born, his father and mother betrothed him to the niece of their friend the fairy Gangana, if she should ever have one. But as the years passed on, and Gangana was still without a niece, the young prince forgot all about his destined bride, and when he was 25, he secretly married the beautiful daughter of a rich farmer, with whom he had fallen violently in love. When the fairy heard the news, she fell into a violent rage, and hurried off to tell the king. The old man thought in his heart that his son had waited quite long enough, but he didn't dare say so, lest some dreadful spell might be thrown over them all, and they should be changed into birds, or snakes, or worst of all, into stones. So, much against his will, he was obliged to disinherit the young man, and to forbid him to come to court. Indeed, he would have been a beggar, had it not been for the property his wife had given her by her father, the farmer, which the youth obtained permission to erect into a kingdom. Most princes would have been very angry at this treatment, especially as the old king soon died, and the queen was delighted to reign in his place. But Pataldo was a contented young man, and was quite satisfied with arranging his tiny court on the model of his father's, and having a lord chamberlain and a high steward and several gentlemen in attendance, while the young queen appointed her own ladies-in-waiting and maids of honour. He likewise set up a mint to coin money, choose a seneschal as the head of the five policemen who kept order in the capital, and punish the boys who were caught in the act of throwing stones at the palace windows. The first to fill this important office was the young king's father-in-law, an excellent man by the name of Caboche. He was much beloved by everyone, and so sensible that he was not at all vain at rising at once to the dignity of Seneschal when he had only been a common farmer, but went about the fields every day as usual. This conduct so struck his king that very soon he never did anything without consulting him. Each morning, Caboche and his son-in-law had breakfast together, and when they'd finished, the king took out of his iron chest great bundles of state papers, which he desired to talk over with his Seneschal. Sometimes they would spend two hours at least in deciding these important matters, but more often than not, after a few minutes, Caboche would say, Excuse me, sire, but your majesty does not understand this affair in the least. Leave it to me, and I'll settle it. But what am I to do then, said the king, and his minister answered, Oh, you can rule the house, and see your fruit garden. You'll find those things will take up all your time. Well, perhaps you're right, the king replied, secretly glad to be rid of the cares of government. But though Caboche did all his work... Pataldo never failed to appear on grand occasions in his royal mantle of red linen, holding a sceptre of gilded wood. 
Meanwhile, he passes when he's in studying books, from which he learned the proper seasons to plant his fruit trees, and when they should be pruned, and his afternoons in the garden, where he put his knowledge into practice. In the evening, he played cards with his father-in-law, and supped in public with the Queen. By ten o'clock, everyone in the palace was fast asleep. The Queen, on her side, was quite as happy as her husband. She loved to be in her dairy, and no one in the kingdom could make such delicious cheeses. But however busy she might be, she never forgot to bake a little barley cake, and make a tiny cream cheese, and to put them under a particular rose tree in the garden. If you had asked her whom they were for, and where they went to, she couldn't have told you. It would have said that on the night of her marriage, a fairy had appeared to her in a dream, and had bidden her to perform this ceremony. After the king and queen had six children, a little boy was born, with a small red cap on his head, so that he was quite different from his brothers and sisters, and his parents loved Cadishon better than any of them, even though everyone knows you should never have favourites. The years went on, and the children were growing big, and when one day, after Gillette, the queen, had finished baking her cake, and had turned it out on the plate, a lovely blue mouse crept up the leg of the table and ran to the plate. Instead of chasing it away, as most women would have done, the queen pretended not to notice what the mouse was doing and was much surprised to see the little creature pick up the cake and carry it off to the chimney. She sprang forward to stop it, when suddenly both the mouse and cake vanished, and in their place stood an old woman, only a foot high, whose clothes hung in rags about her. Taking up a sharp, pointed iron stick, she drew on the earthen floor some strange signs, uttering seven cries as she did so, and murmuring something in a low voice, among which the queen was caught, thought she caught the words faith, wisdom, happiness. Then, seizing the kitchen broom, she whirled it three times round her head and vanished. Immediately, there rose a great noise in the next room, and on opening the door, the queen beheld three large cockchafers, each one with a princess between its feet, while the princess was seated on the backs of three swallows. In the middle was a car formed of a single pink shell, and drawn by robin red breasts, and in this carriage, Cadishon was sitting by the side of the blue mouse, who was dressed in a splendid mantle of black velvet, fastened under her chin. Before the queen had recovered from her surprise, cockchafers, redbreasts, mouse and children had all flown, singing to the window, and disappeared from view. The loud shrieks of the queen brought her husband and father running into the room. When they at last made out from her broken sentences what had really happened, they hastily snatched up some stout sticks that were lying about and set off to the rescue, one going in one direction and one in another. For at least an hour, the queen sat sobbing where they had left her. When at last she was roused by a piece of folded paper falling at her feet. She stooped and picked it up eagerly, hoping it might contain some news of her lost children. It was very short, but when she had read the few words, Gillette was comforted, for it bade her take heart, as they were well and happy, under the protection of a fairy. On your own faith and prudence depend your happiness, under the writer. It is I who have all these years, years eaten the food you placed under the rose tree, and some day I shall reward you for it. Everything comes to him who knows how to wait, is the advice given by, and the letter was from, the fairy of the fields. Then the queen rose up and bathed her face and combed her shining hair, and as she turned away from her mirror she beheld a linnet sitting on her bed. No one would have known it was anything but a common linnet, and yesterday the queen would have thought so too. But this morning so many wonderful things had happened to her that she did not doubt for a moment the writer of the letter was before her. Pretty linnet, she said, I'll try and do all you wish. Only give me, I pray you, now and then, news of my little Cadishon. And the linnet flapped her wings and sang and flew away. So the queen knew she had guessed rightly and thanked her in her heart. By and by, the king and his seneschal returned, hungry and tired with their fruitless search. They were amazed and rather angry to find the queen, whom they had left weeping, quite cheerful. 
Could she really care for her children so little and have forgotten them so soon? What could have caused this sudden change? But to all their questions, Gillette would only answer, everything comes to him who knows how to wait. That is true, replied her father, and, after all, your majesty must remember that the revenues of your kingdom would hardly buy the cost of seven princes and princesses brought up according to their rank. We're grateful, then, to those who have relieved you of the burden. You are right. You are always right, cried the king, whose face once more beamed with smiles. And life at the palace went on as before, till Pataldo received a piece of news which disturbed him greatly. The queen, his mother, who for some time had been a widow, suddenly made up her mind to marry again, and her choice had fallen on the young king of the Green Isles, who was younger than her own son, and besides handsome and fond of pleasure, which Pataldo was not. Now, the grandmother, foolish though she was in many respects, had the sense to see that a woman, as old and as plain as she was, could hardly expect a young man to fall in love with her, and that if this was to happen, it would be needful to find some spell, which would bring back her youth and beauty. Of course, the fairy Gangana could have wrought the change with one wave of her wand, but unluckily the two were no longer friends, because the fairy had tried hard to persuade the queen to declare her niece heiress to the crown, which the queen refused to do. Naturally, therefore, it was no use asking for the help of Gagana to enable the queen to take a second husband, who would be certain to succeed her, and messages were sent all over the neighbouring kingdoms, seeking to find a witch or a fairy who would work for the wishful miracle. None, however, could be found with sufficient skill, and at length the queen saw that if ever the king of the Green Isles was to be her husband, she must throw herself on the mercy of the fairy Gangana. The fairy's wrath was great when she heard the queen's story, but she knew very well that as the king of the Green Isles had spent all his money, he'd probably be ready to marry even an old woman like her friend in order to get more. So she came up with a plan to fool the queen and also prevent the wedding. She hid her feelings successfully from the queen and told her that in three days the spell would be accomplished. Her words made the queen so happy that twenty years seemed to fall from her at once, and she counted not only the hours but the minutes to the appointed time. It came at last, and the fairy stood before her in a long robe of pink and silver, held up by a tiny brown dwarf who carried a small box under his arm. The queen received her with all the marks of respect that she could think of, and at the request of Gangana, all of the doors and windows of the great hall to be closed, and her attendants to retire, so that she and her guests might be quite alone. Then, opening the box, which was presented to her on one knee by the dwarf, the fairy took from it a small vellum book with silver clasps, a wand that lengthened out as he touched it, and a crystal bottle filled with very clear green water. She next bade the queen sit on a seat in the middle of the room, and the dwarf to stand opposite her, after which she stooped down and drew three circles around them with a golden rod, touched each of them thrice with her wand, and sprinkled the liquid over both. Gradually the queen's big features seemed to grow smaller and her face fresher, while at the same time the dwarf became twice as tall as he had been before. This sight, added to the blue flames which sprang up from the three circles, so frightened the queen that she fainted in her chair, and when she recovered, both the page and the fairy had vanished. At first she felt vaguely puzzled, not remembering clearly what had happened, and then it all came back to her, and jumping up she ran to the nearest mirror. Oh, how happy she was! She'd become so beautiful, and her hair was thick and curly and bright gold again. The fairy had indeed fulfilled her promise. But in her hurry and pleasure, the queen never noticed that she'd not been changed into a beautiful young lady, but into a very tall little girl of eight or nine years old. Instead of her magnificent velvet dress, edged with fur and embroidered with gold, she wore a straight muslin frock with a little lace apron, while her hair, which was always combed and twisted and fastened with diamond pins, hung in curls down her back. But if she had only known something besides this had befallen her, for except as regards her love for the King of the Green Isles, 
Her mind as well as her face had become that of a child, and this her courtiers were, courtiers were aware of if she was not. Of course, they could not imagine what had occurred, and didn't know how to behave themselves, till the chief minister set them the example by ordering his wife and daughters to copy the Queen's clothes and way of speaking. Then, in a short time, the whole court, including the men, talked and dressed like children, and played with dolls or little tin soldiers, while the state dinners nothing was seen but iced fruits or sweet cakes, made in the shape of birds and horses. But whatever she might be doing, the Queen hardly ceased talking about the King of the Green Isles, whom she always spoke of as my little husband, and as weeks passed on and he did not come, she began to get very cross and impatient, so her courtiers kept away from her as much as they could. By this time, too, they were growing tired of pretending to be children, and whispered their intention of leaving the palace and taking service under a neighbouring sovereign, when, one day, a loud blast of trumpets announced the arrival of a long-expected guest. In an instant, all was smiles again, and in spite of the strictest rules of court etiquette, the Queen insisted on receiving the young king at the bottom of the stairs. Unfortunately, in her haste, she fell over her dress and rolled down several steps, screaming like a child from fright. She was not really much hurt, although she had scratched her nose and bruised her forehead, but she was obliged to be carried to her room and have her face bathed in cold water. Still, in spite of this, she gave strict orders that the king should be brought to her presence the moment he entered the palace. A shrill blast outside her door sent a twinge of pain through the queen's head, which by this time was aching badly. But in her joy at welcoming her future husband, she paid no heed to it. Between two lines of courtiers, bowing low, the young king advanced quickly, but at the sight of the queen and her bandages, broke into such violent fits of laughter, he was forced to leave the room and even the palace. When the queen had recovered from the vexation caused by the king's rude behaviour, she bade her attendants to hasten after him and fetch him back, but no promises or entreaties would persuade him to return. This, of course, made the queen's temper even worse than it was before, and a plot was set on foot to deprive her of the crown, which would certainly have succeeded, had not the fairy Gangana, who had really only wished to prevent her marriage, restored her to her proper shape. But far from thanking her friend for this service, the sight of her old face in the mirror filled her with despair, and from that day she hated Gangana with her deadly hatred. And where were Bertaldo's children all this while? Why? In the island of Bambini, where they had playfellows to their heart's content, and plenty of fairies to take care of them all. But out of all the seven princes and princesses who the queen had seen carried off to the window, there was only Cadishon who was good and obedient. The other six were so rude and quarrelsome that they could get no one to play with them, and at last, as a punishment, the fairy changed them all into marionettes till they should learn to behave better. Now, in an unlucky moment, the fairy of the fields determined to visit her friend the queen of the fairies, who lived in a distant island, in order to consult her as to what was to become of Cadishon. As she was entering the hall of audience, Gangana was leaving it, and sharp words were exchanged between them. After her enemy had flown off in a range, the fairy of the fields poured out the whole story of Gangana's wickedness to the queen, and implored her counsel. Be comforted, answered the fairy queen. For a while, she must work her will, and at this moment she is carrying off Kadishon to the island where she still holds her niece captive. But, should she make an evil use of the power she has, her punishment will be swift and great. And now I will give you this precious phial. Guard it carefully, for the liquid it contains will cause you to become invisible and safe from the piercing eyes of all fairies. Against the eyes of mortals, though, it has no charm. With a heart somewhat lighter, the fairy of the fields returned to her own island, and the better to protect the six new marionettes and the wicked fairy, she sprinkled them with a few drops of the liquid, only avoiding just the tips of their noses, so that she might be able to find them again. Then she set off for the kingdom of Pataldo, which she found in a state of revolt, because for the first time he had ascended the throne, he had dared to impose a tax. Indeed, matters might have ended in a war, or in cutting off the king's head, had not the fairy discovered a means of contending everybody, and of whispering anew to the queen that all was well with her children. 
for she dared not tell her of the loss of Cadishon. And what had become of Cadishon? Well, the fairy of the fields had found out, by means of her books, which told her that the poor little boy had been placed by Gangana in the enchanted island, round which flowed a rapid river, sweeping rocks and trees in its current. Besides the river, the island was guarded by twenty-four enormous dragons, the breathing flames and forming a rampart of fire, which it seemed as if none could pass. The fairy of the fields knew all this, but she had a brave heart, and determined that by some means or other she would overcome all obstacles and rescue Kadishon from the power of Gangana. So, taking with her the water of invisibility, she sprinkled it over her, and mounting her favourite winged lizard, set out for the island. When it appeared in sight, she wrapped herself in her fireproof mantle, then, bidding the lizard return home, she slipped past the dragons and entered the island. Scarcely had she done so than she beheld Gangana approaching her, talking loudly and angrily to a genie who flew by her side. From what she said, the fairy learned that Bertaldo's mother, the old queen, had died of rage on hearing of the marriage of the king of the Green Isles to a young and lovely bride, and instead of leaving her kingdom to Gangana, had to bequeath it to one of the children of her son, Bertaldo. But all the trouble I have had with that foolish old woman shall not go for nothing, cried Gangana. Go at once to my stables and fetch out the strongest and swiftest griffins you can find in the stalls and harness them to the yellow coach. Drive this with all the speed you may to the Isle of Bambini and carry off the six children of Pataldo that are still there. I will see to Pataldo and Gillette myself. When I've got them all safe here, I will change the parents into rabbits and the children into dogs. And as for Cadishon, I have not quite made up my mind what I shall do with him. The fairies of the fields did not wait to hear more. No time was lost in seeking the help of the fairy queen if Pataldo and his family were to be saved from this dreadful doom. So, without waiting to summon her lizard, she flew across the island and passed the dragons till her feet much more touched the ground. But at that instant a black cloud rolled over her, loud thunder rent the air, and the earth rocked beneath her. Then wild lightnings lit up the sky, and by their flashes she saw the four and twenty dragons fighting together, uttering shrieks and yells till the whole earth must have heard that uproar. Trembling with terror, the fairies stood rooted to the spot, and when day broke, island, torrent, and dragons had vanished, and in their stead was a barren rock and on the summit of the rock stood a black ostrich, and on the back were seated Cadishon and the niece of the fairy Gangana, for whose sake she had committed so many evil deeds. While the fairy of the fields was gazing in surprise at this strange sight, the ostrich spread its wings and flew off in the direction of the fortunate isle, and followed unseen by the good fairy, and to the great hall where the queen was sitting on her throne. Proud and exultant was Gangana in her new shape, for by all the fair laws of fairydom, if she succeeded in laying Cadishon at the feet of the queen, and received him back from her, she, he was in her power for life, and she might do with him as she could. This the good fairy knew well, and pressed on with all her strength, for the dreadful events of the night had almost exhausted her, but with a mighty effort she snatched the children away from the back of the ostrich, and placed them on the lap of the queen. With a scream of baffled rage the ostrich turned away, and Gangana stood in her place, waiting for the doom which she had brought upon herself. "'You have neglected all my warnings,' said the queen, speaking more sternly than any fairy had ever heard her. "'And my sentence is that during two hundred years you lose all your privileges as a fairy, "'and under the form of ostrich shall become the slave of the lowest and wickedest of the genie whom you have made your friends. "'As for these children, I shall keep them with me, and they shall be brought up at my court.' "'And so they were, until they grew up, and were old enough to be married. "'And then the fairy of the fields took them back to the kingdom of the old queen, "'where Patalda was no reigning.' But the cares of state proved too heavy for both him and Gillette, after the quiet life they had led for so many years, and they were rejoiced to be able to lay aside their crowns and place them on the heads of Cadishon and his bride, who was as good as she was beautiful, although she was the niece of the wicked Gangana. Something to worry about later, perhaps. And so well had Cadishon learned the lessons taught him at the court of the Fairy Queen, that never since the kingdom was a kingdom had the people been so well governed and so happy. 
and they went about the streets and fields, smiling with joy at the difference between the old times and the new, whispering softly to each other. Everything comes to him who knows how to wait. And that is the end of my tale, and I hope it pleased you, for it had no other purpose. If you're just here for the story, now is probably a good time to leave us. But if you're interested in finding out a little bit more about it, and the food mentioned in it, as well as this week's recipe, then stick around. You'd be very welcome. So, what did you think? I love the story for its whimsical nature, as I am willing to admit there are some impenetrably bizarre moments. The tiny kingdom and the fairy madness really make the story for me. This is a literary fairy tale written in the grand French style from the third phase of French literary tale. Despite some of the more bizarre qualities of the story, it's definitely a tale with a strong moral about value and strong work ethic, even amongst royalty. There is also an element of parody. The author wrote these tales for an adult audience and was a member of a fashionable salon that enjoyed a radical element. We probably need to look at the author and the background of these types of tales as they perhaps explain some of the more unusual element. The author of our tale was Anne-Claude Comte de Caelus. He was a French man of letters from the 18th century. He wrote tales in what is considered the third phase of French literary fairy tales. But in some ways, he was a throwback to Madame Dornoy and Charles Perrault. He was an aristocrat who travelled widely and had an interest in what we now know as, as archaeology. The story of some of the lengths he went to see ancient ruins could be a tale all by itself. He wrote fairy tales as a hobby and did not base his French tales on French folklore, as I'll discuss shortly. He did, however, very carefully adapt the Quran and Muslim law for his Oriental Tales, which he published in 1743, two years after the Ferret Nouvelle, the volume from which this tale was taken. As I mentioned, the Comte de Caelus was a big fan of adding morals to his stories, but although he obviously values a strong work ethic, he does just as much indicate that a country is ruled much better by someone who has been trained to royalty. Good behaviour, though, clearly does bring its rewards. On a side note, he does also indicate that women should be valued for their skills and inheritance as much as for their beauty. Which, you know, is a little bit of a change. There is much dispute about where the stories come from that were written into the grand style of literary French fairy tales. It is, however, suggested that the famous writers, including Madame d'Ornoy and Charles Perrault, drew from genres that they knew epic tales, medieval romance, and popular tales, including folk tales. They wrote competitively for salons and published regularly until 1715. The beautiful, extravagant settings for these tales come from the time that they were written, that of Louis XIV's France. The writers moved in court circles where courtliness, witty conversation and romance were highly valued, and these are reflected in the tales. There is a school of thought as advanced by Ruth Bottigheimer which suggests that a lot of tales can be traced directly back to the tales from Francesco Straparola, who produced a two-part book of tales called Pleasant Nights, which was originally meant for a Venetian audience and was printed in 1551, part one, and 1553, part two. This book was translated in two parts. The first was translated and printed in 1560 and the second in 1576 by two different translators. The work was called The Pleasant Nights of Sir Francois Straparol, with the fables and riddles told by two gentlemen and ten young ladies, newly translated from Italian into French. The second translator, Pierre de Lavaray, then went back and added omissions from the original text of Part 1 and reworked the translation of Pope Part 1 and 2 between 1580 and 1585. Bottigheimer has dismissed the notion that these tales would have come to the notice of their noble writers from their nursemaids. 
In France, nursemaids were often peasant women who would wet nurse several babies, many of whom did not survive, and once weaned, babies would be returned to their noble families. This is very different from the popular conception of nurses sat by the fireside, telling tales to their tiny charges. If this theory is of interest to you, you might wish to read Italian Popular Tales by Thomas Frederick Crane. Details in further reading. And see if you can see any similarities. The elements of this story are more high fantasy than tales in the oral tradition based on folklore, but there are a couple of similarities. The fairies are all powerful in this tale, and they drive the story forward. The mortals are desperate not to offend them, as they hate to be treated less than respectfully. Even the protective fairy turns the naughty children into puppets due to their terrible behaviour. This translates into more traditional tales where godmothers or witches are often disguised as old women, and treating them poorly results in poor outcomes for potential heroes. The other similarity is leaving food out for the household fae as a reward for their service, in this case in the form of cheese. Dairy foods are said to be particularly attractive to brownies in particular, although this is normally as a gift of fresh milk. The folklore of the dairy is fascinating, and I don't want to get even further off track here, but if you're interested, then look out for a future episode. There is a lot more information on French fairy tales, and I've provided a list in the further reading section of my blog, which can be accessed via the show notes. I haven't even mentioned A Thousand and One Nights and Galant here, as there just wasn't time, but the background is fascinating, especially considered against the background of French history. So, we move on to the food element of our story. I just couldn't resist a story where a queen is known for the quality of her cheeses. There can't be many of those, so I had to choose cream cheese for examination today. I did briefly consider the barley cake, but if you've heard my opinion of barley generally, then you can imagine why I steered clear. If you're interested, there are some great websites which will assist you if you want to make historic foods, and barley griddle cakes are very popular. However, my love for cheese has been established already, so I have indulged myself in exploring cream cheese. And I have to say, I've learned lots, and been left with a deep desire to get comfy with a good book, accompanied by Du Pain, Du Vin et Du Boursin. For those of you who are international or under the age of 30, this was a very effective and successful slogan for a garlic and herb flavoured cream cheese. Some bread, some wine, some boursin. It's delicious, but doesn't actually come into this as it wasn't invented till 1957 and our story was published in 1741. We should probably clarify what was meant by cream cheese at that time in France, or even England for that matter. It definitely wasn't Philadelphia, which was invented in 1872. Well, something similar to what we know today anyway, and then refined until the current much copied long life recipe we now know sometime in the 1940s. The movement of cheese making from home to factory and from something that chiefly involved women to an industry managed by men, happened around the time, well, roughly the same time as the original cheese was developed. It was called Philadelphia style, as that was where the best cream cheeses had come from previously. William Lawrence, the original cheesemaker, was apparently asked by a prestigious deli in New York to make a more luxury product, so he added cream to his full-fat milk cheese, and history was made. There were a lot of reasons it was a success. Some include being packed in square packaging instead of round, but it wasn't something our farmer queen would recognise. In fact, being French, I imagine she'd be appalled at carob gum and other stabilisers being added to cheese to keep it edible. So, we'll pop back to our farmer queen and have a quick look around types of cream cheese. Cream cheeses are cheeses made from milk that has had cream added to the milk before making it into cheese. In England, that was traditionally the morning milk with the cream from the evening milk added. Cream cheese in the 18th century was not necessarily a fresh cheese, which is eaten as soon as it's made, like farmer's cheese, mozzarella or paneer. It could also be a soft cheese, which was left to ripen, such as a camembert style, or brilla savarin cheese. They are still high in moisture and don't mature for a long time. In fact, strictly speaking, Stilton is a cream cheese. 
The first English recipe I could find is in a book called The Good Housewife's Jewel from 1596, and recipes were still appearing in 1842 in addition of Mrs Rundell's A New System of Domestic Cookery. I also found recipes in East Smith's Complete Housewife from 1773. Some of these cheeses were wrapped in dock leaves or nettle leaves to ripen, but others were served straight away. These are probably not that dissimilar to cheeses being made in France at the same time in private households. They are, however, more likely to have had a strong local tradition than in England. I think for the sake of this episode, we should probably think of it as a fresh, soft cheese, or that it would be more crumbly and not whipped like modern cream cheese. You could perhaps picture a fresh goat's cheese log type cheese, spreadable, but with crumbs. Anyway, just a bit of dairy folklore for you before we move on to our recipe. Occasionally, the butter refuses to come when the milk is being churned. The cause of this may be that the cow, the milk, or the cow's owner has been overlooked. If the culprit is suspected, a piece of homespun yarn must be taken out of his or her house, unbeknownst to them. A long thread must be broken off and nine knots tied on. Then take the thread with the knots outside the house or dairy, break off the ninth knot, throw it over your left shoulder. Then bring the remainder of the yarn back into the house, let an old horseshoe, make it real hot but not red hot, and put it back with the yarn with the eight knots on it under the churn when they're churning, and this will bring the butter back. It's from Folklore in 1904. It's possible that the change in temperature of the dairy due to the hot shoe was responsible. However, the ways of the dairy are both weird and wonderful, so it's probably best to get knotting to be on the safe side. Right, on to our recipe, which I admit has more of a connection to modern cream cheese than the historic one, but on the plus side, it is easier to get. Alternately, you could skip the recipe, and if you're based in the UK, head over to the old cheese room online and buy some lipiat, some wasabi pearl and some truffle pearl. Then get some good bread and your favourite drink and just indulge yourself in cream cheese. Where were we? Sorry, I went to a different place. Anyway, this week we have spinach and artichoke dip. Doesn't that sound healthy? I was much better after I've eaten it, so it's definitely good for mental health. It's a garlicky, cheesy, gooey, tasty, hot dip. And it has vegetables, so yay. I'd normally say it's perfect to take to someone else's party and pop in their oven. Or when you have people around to watch films or sport or, you know, even an election. But for now, I'll just suggest it as a main course with a big baguette and some Ritz crackers. There will be leftovers, but it also makes a truly wonderful pasta sauce, with just a bit of the pasta water added. You can even put it in smaller dishes and drop one off on a friend's doorstep to bring joy. Just make sure they know you're coming and are the sort of person who will return the dish. You don't need that undermining your future years of friendship. Well, that's it for today. The recipe is on the page of the blog, which will obviously be in the show notes as well as the links to further reading from some of the sources that I've given today. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd really love it and I'd be so appreciative if you pop over to wherever you get your podcasts and drop me a rating and a review if you've got time. It really helps other people find the podcast. If you'd like to get in touch to talk about things that have been on the podcast or even that you might like to hear on the podcast in future, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at fairytalesfood. I hope to see you for the next episode, which will be in two weeks' time. And thank you for listening to Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. (laughs) 